Good morning. This morning, we're going to talk about what's in your head. Don't worry, we're not going to put you through analysis or anything like that, and I won't be talking about mush, so you're okay. Instead, we're going to do some thinking about thinking. Thinking is a very special gift that God gave humans that we possess. Descartes, the famous philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. And uh, the most interesting word in that famous sentence of his is the word I. I think. There, there, there is a me that actually thinks, a unique, separate individual. Only I am me. So only I can think my thoughts. You know, science and philosophy nowadays try to explain this incredible thing, this ability to think and reason and all that, but they usually kind of get stuck. And it's not easy to explain exactly what I am and what you are. I mean, how do you explain that from a scientific point of view, being an I? I am self-aware. I'm a rational being who thinks about all sorts of things, even things that are invisible, like justice and truth and love. Much of modern philosophy, because it's materialistic, denies anything outside of biology and any other material processes. There's no other realm. There's no higher level. There's no spiritual world. So they have pretty much decided that the idea of self is an illusion. We are not free, they say. All of our thinking, feeling, believing, and choosing is just the response of our biological receptors and our systems to external stimuli. That's one example of how science has a very poor ability to explain reality, because I am a person. I'm significant. We're all unique and wonderful individuals. The truth is, there's that word truth, one of those invisible realities. The truth is that we are persons made by God in his image. And the I, the self, the unique person that is me, bears the stamp of God in the capacity we have to think, reason, and to think in moral terms, and to make moral judgments, as well as all those other things we do, plan and create and do experiments and all the other ways we, we reason. So we humans, we're pretty marvelous creatures, actually, and we're a mess. I mean, really. That's because we're fallen creatures. Our thinking gets messed up. It caves in and is influenced by carnal desires and the spiritual corruption that happened since man fell in the garden so long ago. Corruption like pride and envy and avarice and cruelty and malice. We can lie and we can believe lies. There are lies in the world, there are lies from the devil, and there are lies in our own hearts, which can deceive us and lead us astray. Jeremiah 17.9 famously says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Exactly the reality of the world, human nature. So there is great corruption in us, which by God's grace, should really humble us. New birth we receive in salvation in God's word clarifies, 
many, many things. And our hearts are changed by this work of the Holy Spirit in us. But that heart is still capable, even for Christians, of deceiving us. Our thoughts need to be brought under the lordship of Jesus. And that may well take some very serious work on our parts. We have a duty to God to master our thoughts, to govern them, to focus them, to bid some thoughts to stay and tell other thoughts to go. We can do this. Because the self, I, this being who can think, made in God's image, is not the same as my thoughts. I am not my thoughts. I have thoughts, just as I have bodily desires. But I am not thoughts or desires. That's not what I am. Those are things that I have that happen with me. So the self govern thought life. The self is, in fact, the greatest proof, I think, that, that we are much more than biology because there's no biological explanation for our being ourselves, being the I and me, rather than just responding to things that are outside of myself. So we are much more than biology. And it is this self that is going to live on after our biological systems are long dead. Self will live forever. And the self needs saving by Jesus. This self, as a Christian, needs to honor Jesus as Lord by dealing with thoughts that come to me in our own thought life. So our text today is Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. First, we have to back up just a little bit to get the context. Remember, these verses are not in isolation. There's a flow here, and we're kind of coming to the conclusion of a paragraph. So we want to remember the first parts of this sort of four-part admonition on Paul's, in Paul's letter here. So first Paul says the Christian is to be on solid ground. He says it in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. What does it mean to stand firm? Well, that's what he starts to explain. And here are the keys. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is, we are to be a joyful people, and that joy comes knowing Jesus Christ and walking with him. To know his love and his sovereign goodness is always a cause for joy, no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how dire they are. There's a, there's a core reality that can bring us joy in our hearts in the worst of situations, because we know God loves us and he has us, and our future is secure in Jesus. Second thing we said, we, is, we are to be big-hearted. So we're to rejoice in the Lord, and verse 5, we're to be big-hearted, or forbearing, it might be the word my Bible uses. This sweet reasonableness must be the mark of our presence in the world. Christians are supposed to be a gracious people, gentle, forbearing, and that really just means loving people and seeking their good. And then the last time we talked about this, last time, was uh, the third thing Paul says, and that is be anxious for nothing. We are not to let fears and anxiety diminish our joy or assault our big-heartedness. Because anxiety is common to people, we are to counter anxiety and fear with prayer. Prayer with thanksgiving, he said in, in those verses there. So we need to bring our needs to God and leave them there, confident in his sovereign goodness and power to watch over us. So there's a lot of freedom there, and it leads to true peace of mind. 
This is also valuable. Paul lays out this path to godliness and spiritual maturity right here in chapter 4. He does it so well. So rejoicing, big-hearted, prayerful people are beneficiaries of a supernatural peace, the peace that is beyond understanding. They are the ones who will be the brightest lights in the world. So Paul's advice on, on praying about everything and not being anxious is essential to developing a consistent and mature Christian walk. And it applies in so many different situations and conditions of life. You can think of so many things where there are worries, some small, some big, some all everywhere in between, all different kinds of circumstances in life. Uh, you know, in our situation currently in 2020, a, a man might be worried about being able to provide for his family because he lost his job or got a big cutback in his pay or something like that. So he has to worry about that. He has anxiety about that. If you were a Christian in China today, this very day, uh, you might be anxious that you're going to be arrested and maybe tortured and put away for a long time. There might be a girl who's anxious about her appearance and worried that she's not as attractive as the models in Teen Vogue, for example. I don't recommend reading Teen Vogue. I'm just using that as an example. But uh, there's all kinds of reasons for anxiety and fears. And But if we follow the path that Paul is laying out for us and we start to mature in Christ, rejoicing in him, being big-hearted towards other people, combating our fears and our worries with prayer, then the peace of God starts manifesting itself. And it's an experience. It's something that's real that happens that God brings to our hearts. But it's never perfect. It's never a lasting state of experiencing the peace of God at every moment. That's not going to happen in this life. I've never known a saint who experiences this peace that surpasses understanding perfectly, constantly, always. I don't know anybody like that. Uh, we all live with our own personal imperfections and weaknesses that diminish that peace that God offers us. It'll be that way until we see Jesus. So our imperfections are going to get in the way. So we have to labor our thought life and our, our minds to get ourselves back in a place where that peace of God is governing our hearts. So don't be surprised if God's peace is interrupted or fades away a little bit or maybe a lot. Uh, if it does, don't blame him. It, it's our place to get back into the place where that peace can be experienced by us. Because we get complacent and we take our eyes off him and worry about other things. Our, our flesh wants us to give priority to its desires and its whims. And the world is constantly pressing on us with its foolish notions and barren ideas and uh, worldly things it wants us to give our lives to. And then there are spiritual forces, dark spiritual forces, that are trying to make us stumble, whispering promises of an easy way. You know, Satan does not want you to experience the peace of God. So he's going to work on that. So all those things are working against us. Famous three, right? The three enemies of the Christian, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're very real. They're always at work. And they will disturb that peace that surpasses understanding. So that's why Paul moves into this fourth area. So easy to slip out of the place we need to be. And that's why Paul says, in everything, by prayer, with supplic and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. Everything, he says, must be approached with an open line to our Father in heaven with prayer. We are sunk 
if we depend on ourselves alone. I mean, we're not going to make it in the Christian life. And we can lose our peace in a thousand ways. People mistreat us or situations surprise us and we react with unrighteousness and all kinds of things happen. And we need to get, by prayer, we need to get back to that place we need to be where our hearts are cleansed by repentance and we move in a Godward direction and that peace returns and we can function the way we're supposed to. We saw last time in verse 7 that when the peace of God does come, it sets a guard on our hearts and on our minds. That's an amazing thing. It actually protects us. That's why we, we want to be very near the source of peace and keep those lines of communication open with God. God is the source of peace, that supernatural peace, and we are not to neglect our walk with him. If we do that, we're just asking to lose that peace, and then we've got to fight our way back for it again. So we need that guardian, that sentinel, lest our thoughts take us to places we simply should not go in our heads. Fear, anger, pride, envy. All the worst things in humanity are there. Thoughts come. Okay, so that's kind of the recap here. Now we're ready for the fourth thing, and that is to... Take command of our thoughts, to direct our thoughts. Because our thoughts are not what? Our thoughts are not us, something we have. They're not us. You are not your thoughts. You can control your thoughts. You, the being that God made in his image, can choose to think about things other than things that are sinful or corrupt or unkind or selfish. You can make those choices. You know, I tried that once, but bad thoughts kept coming back. I know you have, sometimes you have to repeatedly choose. And that's where prayer comes in. Because prayer is a huge aid in getting rid of negative thoughts and pushing them away. And that's what we're obligated to do. Some people think you can't control your thoughts because we don't usually seek bad thoughts. They just sort of show up. So people feel like they're just part of who we are and we can't get rid of them. There is some truth to that, to a point, but only to a point. It's true that thoughts can come to us unbidden. In other words, we don't ask for them, we don't seek them. They just show up in our heads because we have this fallen nature and our hearts are corrupt and deceitful above all things. So so it's true to a point that you can't control bad thoughts ever working into your head, but it's the self, the I, that chooses embrace those thoughts or to deal with them as unwelcome visitors. And if you start to deal with them as unwelcome visitors, you can make them go away. Lehman Strauss said, you cannot prevent a bird flying over your head. You can prevent it from building a nest in your hair. You can see the difference there between those two things. Letting a bird build a nest in your hair means just he's staying. But if he flies over, well, I can't stop that. It just happened. Well, the same thing with thoughts. Thoughts can come into your mind. They can be wicked thoughts. You've got a choice of letting them build a nest in your mind, or you can bid them to go by using God's word to expose their worthlessness, by repentance, by seeking God's help, all of those kinds of things. So you can determine, you, the person you are, can determine that unrighteous or harmful or useless thoughts are not welcome. They're not welcome. You can reject them. You can expose their wickedness to yourself. You 
can rob them of their power. For me, it would be like, that's an unworthy thought. I mean, I actually consciously recognize that is an unworthy thought. And I reject it. And I have to do that. Sometimes I have to do it with great frequency if there's something particularly getting into my head. Somebody messes me up and I'm angry with them and I'm, and I'm prideful about that and I'm not humbling myself and realizing that I'm a sinner like they are and I need to seek their good and what's best for them and bring the Word of God to the situation. Sometimes I have to tell myself that over again. If they really mess me up seriously, I might have to actually, I actually personally do that. I actually craft a prayer for that person because I'm not in the mood to pray it. So I have to like write it out and memorize it and then I say it. Every time they come into my mind, I, I grasp those thoughts that are negative and I pray that prayer. And you can't, it's hard to hate somebody and be angry with somebody that you pray for all the time. Really hard. So that's how I deal with those bad thoughts. And sometimes it's a process. Usually I'm pretty easy going about things like that, but every once in a while somebody can get to me. I've got to handle it that way. I create a prayer for them. And if I can't think of anything else to pray, I pray that prayer I created for them. And that softens my heart. So that's one way to do that. So if you feel slighted by someone, uh, one way you can deal with it uh, is, well, let's think about the things that that does. Usually when you're, somebody slights you and you're reacting in a bad way, you start magnifying their sin and diminishing your sin. That's one of the things you do. That's a, that's a wicked thought right there. You can start to harden yourself against that person. You can start listing in your mind all the faults which make you superior to them, their faults. You know, you start magnifying them and thinking about it, and then you get to a point, well, well I would never do that, so I'm superior to them. And then you can start to desire what's worst for them, not what's best for them. So that would be the tragic end of that sort of line of bad thoughts that are going through your mind. And all of that is contrary to the spirit of Christ. There's, there's great corruption in us. By God's grace, he can humble us. And he will if we humble ourselves before him. So that's how we start to work through some of these things. Our thoughts be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We need to make him the guardian of our hearts and of our minds. And we can expect that to take some serious work sometimes. It's always serious work, but sometimes it's a labor because something just really sticks and it's got to be dealt with. We have a duty to God to get our thoughts under control. And we can do it. So this self, I, this being who can think, is not the same as the thoughts that I have. I am not my thoughts. I have thoughts, just as I have bodily desires. But I am not the desires or the thoughts. I have them. So that's where the self comes in. And you've got to realize that you do have the power to govern these things. Okay. Um, let's get to the text. Philippians 4, 8. If you're following Paul's path here in Philippians 4, rejoicing in the Lord, being big-hearted toward all men, replacing anxiety with prayer, you can take all those negative thoughts and disable them one by one. We've talked about that. Um, Paul mentions eight things starting in verse 8. Now, so we're talking about thoughts that might be contrary to Christ and dealing with those, right? So selfishness, judgmentalism, vengefulness, envy, pride, all those kind of things we talked about. God will show us those things. 
we approach it properly. Paul's counsel in verses 8 through 9 will make governing your thoughts way easier. And there's plenty of worthwhile things to think about in life. So that's where he's telling you to go. Here's his list. Finally, brethren, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and of anything worthy of praise, well, these things. So he mentions these, all of these things, eight things. They're pretty broad ideas. They're not super detailed, which is really good because they encompass a lot of things. So there's one command here. The command is to dwell on, dwell on these things in verse 8. So the word dwell is related. The actual word has the word mind in it, in the Greek original word there. So it's not like dwell like where you're living. It's thinking about. So that is the idea here. Let your mind dwell on these things. Other thoughts might fly by, but give yourself to these kinds of thoughts, these kinds of things. So we're going to take them one at a time. And as I say, they're kind of general ideas, so they're pretty easy to grasp. So first is whatever is true. Whatever is true. So that would be things that are reliable, not unreliable, right? Not false, not deceptive. We already mentioned that the human heart is what? Deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17.9 again. That's the condition of the human heart. Is the human heart true? Not always. God says it's deceitful above all things. So, you know, we live in a really interesting cultural moment. It used to be Christian society, uh, when the culture was more Christian generally, people were kind of aware that just because they have thoughts or desires, that doesn't mean they're good, or that if they feel like something really strongly, that it's not necessarily good. But we live in a time when our, when our, our culture actually takes truth and, and roots it in the least re- reliable place, which is the human heart. People used to say, well, you can't trust yourself. You've got to trust wisdom, wise people around you, cultural norms. If they were religious, it might be the Bible or what their pastor says or something like that. But according to modern American thought, it's true if you feel it. And the more you feel it, the more true it is. I desire something or crave something or have an orientation in a certain direction, then that is what is true. No other considerations are supposed to be used to measure my heart. I have to accept whatever I feel deeply or I'm drawn to powerfully. If it's there, it's a truth about me that is to be embraced. That's where our culture is. I am what I think I am. This may be the way you could say it. So giving the heart authority is really the message our culture gives. And that really started quite a while ago. You see it in children's films. I mean, when I grew up, I'm an old man. When I was growing up, that was a pretty constant theme in children's films. And it's more and more so today in children's stories to follow your heart. Right? Isn't that the big message in so many of these stories? Follow your heart. What does your heart tell you? Listen to your heart. Well, if you're a totally good, righteous, holy individual, that's the right thing to do. But if you have corruption, if you're a fallen creature, if sin appears in your mind and in your heart, then sometimes you have to challenge your heart. Sometimes you have to say no to your heart. 
sometimes the strongest desires that you have are evil. That matters. It matters that you learn you are not just what you feel. You've got to take control of that. So the heart cannot be the final arbiter of what is true. Like, you know, when your family and your best friends and everyone in your church tells you that the guy you're dating is bad news, maybe you should listen. Maybe. Oh, but my heart, my heart. Oh, but your heart is deceitful above all things, is it not? So why would you trust it? What is the primary source of truth in the world? It's God's Word. So that is our great corrective right there. Jesus, in praying to the Father, said, Your Word is truth. John 17, 17. Paul talked about the Christian's armor in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Girded your loins means ready to go. You need to be ready to go with truth. That needs to be the anchor. That's what you're prepared with. You surround yourself. You put truth deep in your heart. You will be well prepared with truth. You follow God's word. So we need to know, think about, our mind dwell on the word of God. Now that's not the only truth there. There's all kinds of wisdom that follows as consistent with scripture. Good things to think about, wise things, noble things. God's Word has to be the standard by which we judge our hearts first need to be judged by the Word of God. First and foremost, judge your heart by the Word of God. Whatever is not true, don't let your mind dwell there. Don't let that be the bird that lands in your ear and makes a nest there. Those things have to be rejected. Whatever is not true. The second thing is honorable. Whatever is honorable. And that means deserving of honor and respect. Um, are these thoughts I'm having something that, an, that I would find honorable in a good person? That's the way to think about it. Are, are they worthy thoughts of somebody that I would respect for their goodness and their courage and their wisdom? This encompasses all kinds of things. Our motives morals, even our manners, I mean, just the way we treat people, just our interactions with other people. All the things that you would honor in a good man, in a godly person, dwell on those things with your mind. Think on these things. Number three, what is right? That word is often translated just, and that's probably the way it's most often used in the Bible. The word justification is a a larger version of this word, an expanded version of this word. So our minds should think well on justice, what is right, so that we will do what is right. Stand for what is right. We have to be really careful here because the word justice is being kind of twisted and used unrighteously these days. And that's where you have to go back to the Bible as our source of truth for what justice actually is. Justice, is. justice in the Bible is not showing partiality. You know what I mean by partiality? It's regarding one person over another person, or one group over another group. Partiality is why the 
being impartial is why the Statue of Liberty, you know, she's holding the scales, and there's something else wrapped around her head. It's a blindfold. So she can't tell if you're rich or poor, if you're enough in-group or the out-group, if you're in a high class or you're an untouchable, if you're what color you are or any of those kind of things, justice is to be completely blind. That's impartiality. And a believer is supposed to be impartial in dealing with justice. So doing right includes opposing evils in the world. Evils like abortion or denying poor people equal treatment before the law. But you know, in the Bible, it's unjust to favor poor people against rich people because justice is supposed to be blind. Justice isn't supposed to take wealth into consideration one way or another way. Now, it's true. In most cultures, at most time, the poor are the ones that are on the bad end of that stick because the rich have the power, right? So that's often the case. But the poor can turn into a mob. You could be in the French Revolution and they start slaughtering people for no reason. So, uh, well, it's just because they're upset and they're in a bad mood. And they, they want things. So um, it can go both ways. Well, that's unjust on the other side. So the Bible says don't follow a mob. It actually says that, not to follow a mob. So justice is to be impartial. Apply everything equally to all people. So we've talked about really important things here so far. The next one is pure. Morally pure is likely the idea you know, Greco-Roman society where Paul grew up was as immoral and as perverse as ours. There's no form of immorality that was not common in those days. Their minds um, delighted in lust and gratified those lusts whenever they could. The Romans uh, would have loved HBO and Netflix because they, they glorified the pornography of it, the, glorification of immorality. And we're talking about minds here and pure thinking, right? So images and stories that celebrate perversion and fornication and pornographically depict those sins, those things are to be left out of our minds because stories touch our hearts in deep ways and images, once they're in your head, are pretty hard to get rid of. And we're not to have those things or delight in those things. We have to remember that just because something is called entertainment, doesn't make it pure. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Calling it entertainment makes it acceptable. Oh, I'm going to delight in this thing. This is, this is for me. That's what you're actually saying when you turn on something like that. Ephesians, uh, 11, 5, Ephesians 5, 11, and 12, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead expose them. It is disgraceful even to speak of the things that are done by them in secret. And if it's disgraceful to speak about them, it's really disgraceful to pay people to act them out for you and do all kinds of horrible and wicked things uh, for your amusement. That is not good. You, we, you've got to maintain that sense of shame with regard to things that are foul and ugly, not delight in those things or put up with those things. Or say, it doesn't bother me. Well, if it doesn't bother you, there's already something wrong with you because wicked things should bother you. Shameful things should bother you. It's a disgrace even speak about some of those things. So don't entertain yourself with things that are too disgraceful to speak of. Your thoughts should be turned to what is pure. Number five, whatever is lovely. This word appears only here in the New Testament. It's kind of a unique word in the Bible. And it just means beautiful or attractive. It's not talking about beautiful like Sophia Loren. This is a, this is a moral beauty. 
Sophia Loren, she was an actress from the golden year. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Very pretty. Um, when someone does an exceptionally kind deed, what do people say often about that? That was beautiful. They use the word beautiful to describe goodness. And that's how the Bible's using it here. That's what it means by lovely. There's a moral loveliness in goodness. So it's the opposite of ugly behavior, selfish behavior, arrogant attitudes, arrogant words, arrogant actions, nastiness. Our thoughts should not dwell on what is ugly and distasteful and unworthy, especially our own feelings, especially out of us. We know those things exist, but we should not mentally live in them. We should not dwell in them. They do exist, yes. We can acknowledge they exist. We can discuss them in a sanctified way about uh, their corrupting influences, but we don't want to dwell in that way. Dwell in that place. Don't feed the beast within. Repent of corrupt thoughts and think on what is beautiful and commendable in Christ-like love. Number six, good repute. I think we could call this having a good name, a good name. Our minds should honor worthy actions in other people, right? And then humbly seek to honor Christ by keeping a good reputation ourselves. Not for our glory, but because it's right, and it honors the Lord to do that. Here I think we, we have a wrong thought that sometimes passes through our head. Well, if the world is evil... Do we really want evil people thinking well of us? Well, yes we do, and no we don't. I mean, there's another careful thing you've got to do there. We don't want them to think well of us because we are feeding and delighting in their evil, or not supporting their evil. We want them to think well of us because the things that they know are really good and they do aspire to, that are consistent with what we would agree with that are good and what we aspire to, they should see those things in us. That's the idea here. There are common values that you find repeated across all major cultures and civilizations. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Abolition of Man, and in the back he has a thing called the Tao, and he's using an Asian term, but he's talking, he, he just goes through all the major civilizations of the world, and their, their moral standards, they're pretty similar. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, all, all these kinds of things. There's a, a lot of common virtues that all people share, because we're made in God's image, and people do have a moral sensibility in themselves. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talks about the Gentiles, those wicked Romans and Greeks, and he says, Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. In other words, it's just built into humanity uh, to know that certain things are right and wrong. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to kill, to murder. It's wrong to... Uh, commit adultery and steal somebody else's wife. Everybody kind of agrees with that, even if they do it. All, all cultures and civilizations generally agree with those kind of things. So Paul's world, the, the Roman world, had very wicked practices. It was, we just said, it was extremely impure, immoral. Um, they delighted also in horrific violence and death. They watched people kill each other for entertainment. We do that too, but it's usually fake. They worshipped idols which is horrible. They were barbaric and cruel to the peoples they conquered. They had no mercy frequently. But the Romans had standards. They did have standards, morals, by which they judged themselves. And if we look at their 
morals, their virtues, they would call them. You know the word virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which means manly, man. So they would say, to be a man, you should be in a certain way. In fact, if you Google um, Roman personal and civic virtues, you can get a whole long list of the things that they did believe in and they tried to aspire to in their lives. In fact, let me give you some of them. I was walking through here and I'm going, well, these are all English words, or they became English words. I think people used to know these big words because they used to know Latin in school. And so when it was easy for them to use all these big words, like the first one, comitas, comity. We don't say comity very often, but it's a very common English word in older books and things like that. And it means courtesy, ease of manner, friendliness, comity. Clementia, what word in English comes from that? Clemency. Right? It means mercy. So to be a merciful person is a good quality. They believe that. We believe that. We, we believe it deeper because we know of the incredible mercy of God in Christ. But they believed in being merciful. Uh, if, if they could do that, they weren't always merciful as armies, but they believe that should be a personal quality. Firmitas. Firm. F-I-R-M. Firmitas. Tenacity, strength of mind, the ability to stick to one's purpose. Being firm, right? Gravitas, gravity, that sense of importance of the matter at hand, responsibility, earnestness, that sort of thing. Being serious, a serious person. Frugalitas, frugal, the word comes straight from that. Economy, simplicity of style, austerity, um, not being miserly. The Romans believed in that. Industria, industria, work hard, hard work, industry, we get our word from that. Prudentia, prudence, foresight, wisdom, personal discretion, veritas, truthfulness, honesty in dealing with other people. So all of those were qualities that the Romans taught their children, that they were to aspire to, that they were to try to make true in their lives. And many did strive for those things, especially amongst the upper classes. They uh, really strove to have these kinds of reputations. Now, some of them are extremely wicked, immoral people, and cruel and heartless and monstrous, just like we are. But um, those were the virtues of their culture, and many of them tried to live by that. Right at the end of the Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, which, of course, is about the Romans, Mark Anthony is standing over the body of uh, Brutus, and he, he says these words. He says, this was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did what they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. In other words, joined them. His life was gentle, and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. That's kind of how the play ends, basically. There's one more little group of lines, but that's it. And I know that was written in the Renaissance in like 1600, but it really captures the Roman mind and the Roman virtue, Roman ideals. Gentleness, honesty, integrity, not being envious, not doing things for selfish purposes. They, they believed in that. They believed in that. So um, a Christian should develop in their lives these universally respected qualities, and we should do it by growing in Christ and making the Word of God the standard of our life because our, our virtues will exceed the world's virtues in these areas if we're doing it right. We should have a good name with the world in these common areas of virtue that we agree upon. Here's the kicker. 
Paul's world, in the Roman world, days of the early church, the Romans really did not expect to find these virtues in low-born people or slaves. It was believed by many Romans that low-born people, you know, your common workmen and slaves and people like that, were not capable of virtue. They were not capable of this kind of manliness. These were virtues for men, men with land, men with standing, men with noble blood in their veins who come from the great families. But one reason that Christianity was so successful in exploding across the Roman Empire was that common people, simple people, even slaves, could show in their lives these virtues even better than the noble Roman aristocracy. It's shocking when you find a slave that is more honest, more chaste, more wise, more merciful, more frugal than most of the Roman elites. I mean, that's a shocking thing. It stood out. Well, you, how could you be like that? Even their philosophers, the Roman philosophers, didn't believe that low-born people could achieve that. You have to spend your life not working but thinking and you know, developing your mind and all that kind of stuff. And here are these, here's a slave living a godly life, a slave you could trust. It glorifies Christ. You have the respect of the world in these ways. So, excellent. Excellent. Paul summarizes here at the end of verse 8, and, and then we have the command. Uh, the end of verse 8, he says, if there is any excellence, that's number 7, or anything worthy of praise, that's number 8, dwell on these things. So all those six things we listed, and then he says, he just broadens it out, any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind live there, thinking about those things, measuring yourself by those things, challenging yourself to rise up, to be like that, to be those kinds of things. Put your mind there, not on sin, not on your selfish desires, not on your lusts, not on a lot of meaningless, foolish stuff, but on things that are excellent, worthy of praise. Paul then closes us out, and we'll finish up with this, uh, using himself as an example. How can he use himself as an example? Because he did actually live it. He doesn't claim perfection. We already saw that in this book, Philippians. But he did achieve a very high level of spiritual maturity. We can model ourselves on that. Verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You can be this way. You can have victory over thoughts. He taught it. He taught these things. They received it. They heard him, and they saw him live it out. Remember, he planted that church in Philippi. He was there for a long time. He knew him. He can live it. What we're talking about is not for super saints. It's, it's for anyone who follows Paul's path. That's why he's giving it to us. This is the path he walked in, and it works. Practice. Practice these things, he says. Everything I know that's worthwhile takes practice. Most people don't instantly anything. Most things take practice. So practice taking your mind and turning it to worthwhile things. And 
things that are not worthwhile or even more depraved, take those things out of your mind. Learn to deal with it. Keep um, a clean mind. Keep an honorable mind. Keep a just mind. A lovely mind, if you will. See all these things through the mind of Christ, not your own sinful nature. And then Paul says, and the, he goes back to this issue of peace. And the, and the God of peace will be with you. I think he has to mean here being, ex, it'll experientially be with you. You will have peace in your heart. I mean, peace was made by Christ uh, between us and God legally, but this is more than that. It's talking about actually feeling that peace, that we have a, good relationship with God, that he is favorably disposed towards us, and, and we're settled, we're, we're strong, we're, um, we have those virtues, those Christian virtues, in a way that the world can't even have them. It's the same peace that passes all understanding in verse 7. That peace can belong to you, it can be yours, but you've got to follow the path. You have to practice these things. Walk the excellent path with your mind the choice that you get to make. Let's pray. Father, here's a clear path for us that you've given us to right living. It's not what our hands do, but first and foremost, what our minds do that you care about. Give us the power to progress in this, to, to not be at the whims of whatever passes through our heads or whatever is put before us by the world or whispered to us by Satan but to discern what is good, to give our minds and our attention to those things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Work on that. Make that your practice. We are almost done with Philippians. One more Sunday. We will not be back in church probably next Sunday. <laughs> I don't, we have no idea what's going to happen with this whole... Um, lockdown thing, but um, just pay attention to what's going on, and we hope to be back with you live in person soon, but I can't guarantee that, but just keep, keep yourself abreast of announcements, emails, and things like that. We'll be letting you know what's going on. I know it's driving me crazy too, but uh, we're going to do the right thing. So hang in there, and God bless you. We'll see you next time.